VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Ukraine says more than 260 of its fighters have been evacuated from the Mariupol steel mill. AP correspondent Mike Rossi has those details. Ukraine's military says more than 260 Ukrainian fighters were evacuated Monday from the besieged steel plant in Mariupol and taken to areas under Russia's control. Deputy Defense Minister Anna Malyar said 53 of the fighters who were seriously wounded were taken to a hospital in Novosovsk, east of Mariupol. An additional 211 fighters were evacuated to Olenivko through a humanitarian corridor. There there was no immediate word on whether the wounded would be considered prisoners of war. Malyar added it is impossible to unblock the Azovstal steel plant by military means, and missions are underway to rescue the fighters who remain inside the plant. I'm Mike Gracia. The white gunman uh, charged in a deadly racist rampage inside a Buffalo supermarket did not need to travel abroad for tactical training. Nor did he need to join an organization of like-minded militants who shared his world views. Alan Payton Gendron needed uh, on his uh, path uh, to radicalization was uh, explore or exposure on the internet to a stew of hate-filled conspiracies, peddled in some cases by uh, white killers whose massacres he had extensively researched online. The 18-year-old now stands accused in a murderous assault that have le- has left 10 black people dead. And the uh, rant-filled diatribe attributed to him fits in an all-too-familiar profile. An aggrieved white man driven to violence by racist extremism. There is more at voanews.com. This is VOA News. The United States is now revising its policy toward Cuba, lessening restrictions on remittances and travel. VOA's Joe Ramsey has more on the story from Washington. White House said Monday some President Donald Trump era restrictions are being eased on family remittances and travel to the island and will sharply increase the processing of U.S. visas for Cubans. The measures were rolled out after a lengthy government review and marked the most significant changes in the U.S. approach to Havana since President Joe Biden took office in January 2021. But the announcement stopped short of returning U.S.-Cuba relations to the historic reconciliation engineered by former President Barack Obama, under whom Biden served as vice president. Joe Ramsey, VOA News, Washington. The U.S. death toll from COVID-19 has now hit one million, less than two and a half years into the outbreak. This is a once unimaginable figure that only hints at the multitudes of loved ones and friends staggered by grief and frustration. That figure is based on data kept by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The number of dead is now equivalent to a 9-11 attack every day for 336 days. It is roughly equal to the number of Americans who died in the Civil War and World War II combined. It is as if uh, Boston and Pittsburgh were wiped out and some of those left behind say they cannot return to normal. They replay their loved ones' voicemail messages or watch old videos to see them dance. When other people say that they are done with the virus, they bristle with anger or ache in silence. North Korea has now reported another large jump in illnesses believed to be COVID-19 as an outbreak spreads through its unvaccinated population. 
State media also said the military had deployed medical officers to help distribute medicine and pharmacies in Pyongyang for opening 24 hours a day. The country said Tuesday that another 270,000 people were found with fevers and six people died. That raises North Korea's death to 56 after more than 1.448 people became ill with fever since late April. North Korea's outbreak is almost certainly bigger than the tally since it has limited testing capacity. There are also suspicions its death toll is underreported because people fear punishment or are trying to soften the blow to the country's leadership. Recapping our top story, Ukraine says that more than 260 of its fighters have now been evacuated from the Mariupol steel mill. There's more at VOANews.com. Via remotes, I'm Tommy McNeil, VOA News. Today is Tuesday, May 17th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedrofo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour. The European Union fails to agree on an oil embargo against Russia over its invasion of Ukraine. Signs of exasperation against Hungary emerged at a meeting of European Union foreign ministers in Brussels, including from Ukraine's top envoy. U.S. President Joe Biden deploys hundreds of American troops to Somalia to tackle rising insurgency. There's been a constant dissatisfaction expressed by senior U.S. commanders saying that it's not doing enough good that al-Shabaab has been able to expand, grow more powerful. And Turkey's president objects to Sweden and Finland's historic bid to join NATO. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. The European Union again failed to agree on an oil embargo against Russia Monday as part of a sixth package of sanctions over the war in Ukraine. Hungary remains a key holdout, demanding high price for green light in the package. For VOA, Lisa Bryant reports from Paris. Signs of exasperation against Hungary emerged at a meeting of European Union foreign ministers in Brussels, including from Ukraine's top envoy, Dmitry Kuleba, who was invited to the talks. An oil embargo against Russia, he said, was essential. It's clear who is holding the issue, uh, but uh, time is running out because every day Russia keeps making money and investing this money uh, into the war. Lithuanian Foreign Minister Gabrielius Landsbergis also expressed frustration. Now, unfortunately, we are, uh, the whole union is being held uh, hostage by uh, one member state uh, who cannot uh, find, uh, could not help, help us find their consensus. The EU needs unanimous agreement from its 27 members to push through each set of sanctions. Until now, that's happened. An oil embargo would be the toughest sanction so far, hurting Moscow's ability to finance the war. It would also hit some European countries highly dependent on Russian energy. But Hungary, already considered an EU maverick on other issues, is especially putting on the brakes. Reports say Budapest wants hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation and possibly more to transition from Russian oil imports. 
EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell said the conversations with Hungary were largely technical. He offered no timeline for coming to an agreement. Still, some EU members are hopeful that a breakthrough is only days or weeks away. One thing is clear, I think it's clear for everybody in the Council, we have to get rid of the energy dependency of the European Union with respect to oil, gas and coal coming from Russia. Borrell said the war in Ukraine has tested the bloc in key ways, not just the conflict itself, but it is also testing Europe's energy resiliency as it unwinds its dependency on Russian supplies and its very legitimacy. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. President Joe Biden has signed an order to redeploy hundreds of U.S. troops to Somalia to counter the Islamic extremist rebel group al-Shabaab. It's an effort that American military leaders said had been hampered by President Donald Trump's late-term decision to withdraw forces from the country. U.S. troops will be repositioned from elsewhere in Africa to train and provide other support to Somali forces in their fight against the rebel group. Al-Shabaab is considered the largest and wealthiest affiliate of the al-Qaeda extremist organization. And the announcement is a reminder that the U.S. remains engaged in a long fight against Islamic extremists, even if that fight has been eclipsed by the war in Ukraine and other matters. For more, I spoke with VOA's national security correspondent, Jeff Selden. The details on when they're going to arrive and where they're going to go have not all been worked out yet. But after basically a year of deliberations at the Pentagon and at the White House, White House officials and Pentagon officials say the decision was made to change the approach. Initially, the U.S. had about 750 special forces operating in Somalia, advising and assisting Somalian forces as they took on militants and terrorists with al-Shabaab in December 2020. Then President Donald Trump decided to take those forces out, reposition them to better address other priorities. But there's been a constant dissatisfaction expressed by senior U.S. commanders, especially with AFRICOM, going back for the last year or so, saying that it's not doing enough good, that al-Shabaab has been able to expand, grow more powerful. And so the White House says, and the Pentagon says, all that taken into account, it led to the decision on Monday to authorize the deployment of about maybe 450, up to 500 forces to Somalia. Is this a one-time decision by the president, or this is just a broader new U.S. policy of deploying troops abroad? The White House and the Pentagon are portraying this as a decision specifically about Somalia and specifically because of the threat posed by al-Shabaab, which they describe as the most powerful, wealthiest, most dangerous, most deadly of the affiliates of the al-Qaeda terror group. And so they're saying that this is about Somalia and that while there has been advising and assisting going on, while U.S. forces have, as the commander of Africa Command put it, have been commuting to work in Somalia to help Somali forces, that has become more dangerous and it simply isn't as effective as having the U.S. troops there on what they're calling a persistent basis. So they're saying this is about Somalia, the situation there, and the acute threat there is requiring this move. Whether or not it will be applied, this type of thinking will be applied to other situations remains to be seen. Interesting to note, though, just last week, the U.S. administration, as part of a a meeting of foreign ministers who are part of the coalition to defeat the Islamic State terror group, talked about really launching a new counterterrorism initiative across Africa, 
But they said the focus there was not so much on military solutions, but it was more on civilian-led solutions, diplomatic solutions, economic solutions that could get at the root cause with the military aspect, using military force against terror groups across Africa, really as, as a secondary part of that strategy. So how this plays out remains to be seen. Some analysts say this might be a slippery slope. For instance, if there are in other countries, in other regions, there are terror groups as bad as uh, those in Somalia. And if their home governments did not extend their cooperation with the U.S., will the U.S. unilaterally go in there to take out those groups? U.S. has been pretty steady, though, in its insistence and its strategy over several administrations now that the best way to fight terrorism is by having strong local partners on the ground. That's what the U.S. has done in Syria, countering the Islamic State with the Syrian Democratic Forces, providing advice, assistance, training, airstrikes when needed, surveillance from the air when needed. The same thing has been done in Iraq, where Iraqi forces continue to battle Islamic State, but U.S. forces, while at one point, having been more on the front lines, have more really pulled back and are there letting the Iraqis do the majority of the fighting. And that's what they say was happening in Somalia with al-Shabaab. That's VOA's national security correspondent Jeff Selden speaking with me from Washington, D.C. The first commercial flight in nearly six years took off from Yemen's Sana'a airport for the Jordanian capital Amman on Monday, carrying hospital patients needing treatment abroad. Observers say the airport's reopening is a major step forward in a fragile peace process in the conflict which has been grinding on for the past seven years. For VOA, Dale Gavlak reports from Amman. The United Nations says a conflict in Yemen pitting a Saudi-led coalition supporting the government against the Iran-backed Houthi rebels has created a humanitarian catastrophe in the impoverished nation at the tip of the Arabian Peninsula. More than 23 million Yemenis across the country need humanitarian help. The war has also threatened security in the Persian Gulf. The resumption of flies from Sana'a Airport, which is held by the Houthi rebels, is part of a UN-brokered two-month ceasefire that went into effect in early April. The airport had been closed to commercial traffic since August of 2016. Bruce Riddell, a senior fellow at the Washington-based Brookings Institution, says such commercial flights are necessary to allow Yemenis, particularly those with health issues, to receive treatment abroad, given the country's weak medical infrastructure. The U.N. is also trying to get a Yemeni passport office established in Sana'a that both parties will agree can certify and issue appropriate documents, he says. Jasmine Lavoie, the media coordinator for the Norwegian Refugee Council in Yemen, told VOA that Monday's flight is a stepping stone towards a lasting peace for Yemen. This was one of the main things that had to be settled during that two months truce. We're also hearing that other fights could happen as soon as next Wednesday. It means that Yemeni can seek medical treatment abroad, be quicker, easier, cheaper to bring goods in and out of Yemen. There are tens of thousands of Yemenis outside the country due to the conflict, Lavois says. He adds that the truce has also called for the opening of the roads in the heavily disputed Taiz region and other governorates. His and other international agencies are calling for this and other truce provisions to be realized. We've been witnessing some encouraging things. Some IGOs have been able to access places that weren't accessible for more than three years and uh, conduct need assessment and uh, help some people there. We saw a reduction in civilian casualties in the first month of the truce. So these are really encouraging things as well, but we obviously need more. 
Brookings Bruce Riddell says the next big step is to get the ceasefire extended indefinitely. The UN says extending the truce, the first inclusive ceasefire in the war since 2016, would make possible broader political negotiations to end the conflict that has killed tens of thousands of Yemenis. Dale Gavlek for VOA News, Amman. In other news, Turkey's president is objecting to Sweden and Finland's historic bid to join NATO. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan says he cannot allow them to become members of the alliance because of their perceived inaction against exiled Kurdish militants. Sweden and Finland decided to seek NATO membership after Russia invaded Ukraine. But Erdogan doubled down on comments last week, indicating that the two Nordic countries' path to NATO would be anything but smooth. All 30 current NATO members must agree to legend new members. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. The northern Ethiopian town of Libila, a UN World Heritage Site, just a few miles from the Tigray region's border, was a tourist hotspot before the war. Known for its rock-hewn churches, tourism came to a halt when fighting that saw the town change hands several times. For VOA, Harry Wilkins looked at his efforts to recover in this report from Lalibela. The rock-hewn churches in Lalibela have stood for almost 900 years, it is thought. Last year, however, the UN expressed serious concern for their future, as Lalibela became a battleground in Ethiopia's civil war. During the conflict, the town changed hands at least five times between forces from the Tigray region and the federal government and allied forces. Bayene Abate is the chief receptionist at Lalibela's top 12 hotel. He says the hotel was ransacked and used as a field hospital by forces from the Tigray People's Liberation Front during the occupation. They were only able to reopen two weeks ago, after the clean-up. Yeah, the main problem is hydroelectric power, water supply, uh, even the road was not yet finished. It was con- The contract was the Chinese people. They take all the machine, the TPLA soldier, because of that, tourists not, um, many tourists not coming here, just a few tourists coming by airplane. It could have been worse. The hotel next door was hit by an Ethiopian government drone strike after TPLF forces occupied it, residents say. The town's economy relies on Ethiopian pilgrimages and the international tourism that has sprung up around the churches. The combined effects of COVID-19 and the conflict mean visitor numbers have plummeted in the last two years. The town is struggling to recover. There is no electricity and access to water is severely affected. Dinku Fente, who sells souvenirs to tourists outside one of Lalabella's churches, says earning a living under the TPLF was tough. The war totally froze my business. During the conflict, no one even dared to try to sell souvenirs and religious books at the market as we were far too scared. The TPLF soldiers would steal any money you made anyway, so we just chose to stay away. Local tour guide, Ayalu Abe, said his business shut down during the conflict too. Now he's finding it nearly impossible to recover. But after this case happened, almost this 
two, three days, at least, you know, uh, just a chance to working as a tour guide. But for the last three years, nothing any else, all the things are is blocked or it's closed, so no one is working properly in here. UNESCO says it plans to support the city of Lalabella. Our major concern is the, the, the communities who are living in the site, who are caring about the site, who are uh, caring about this uh, important World Heritage site to manage the site and continue uh, using it the way they have been doing since many, many centuries. Atomo said a UNESCO delegation is due to visit at the end of the month to assess the type of support that is needed. Henry Wilkins for BOA News, Lalabella, Ethiopia. Leader King Jong-un has ordered North Korea's military to stabilize distribution of COVID-19 medicine in the capital Pyongyang in the battle on the country's first confirmed outbreak of the disease, state media said. Residents, however, say they are turning to traditional methods to treat the virus. Louisa Knox of Reuters has more. North Korea is not only battling its first confirmed explosive outbreak of COVID-19, but it says it is also grappling with drug shortages. State media reported that the country's leader, Kim Jong-un, has ordered the immediate deployment of the military to stabilize the distribution of medicine in the capital, Pyongyang. Kim, who was seen visiting pharmacies on Sunday, told an emergency Politburo meeting that drugs procured by the state were not reaching people quickly or accurately. He added that pharmacies were not well equipped to perform their functions smoothly, state news agency KCNA said. KCNA added that Kim had criticized the irresponsible work attitude, organization and execution by the cabinet and the public health sector. President of neighboring South Korea, Yoon Suk-yul, has said he is willing to help. If North Korea responds, we will spare no medicines including COVID-19 vaccines, medical equipment and health personnel. Seoul's Unification Ministry, which is responsible for cross-border relations, said it had proposed working-level talks to provide medical supplies, including vaccines and test kits, as well as technical cooperation. But it added that the North had not received its message. Amid the medical shortages, North Korean state media has encouraged residents to use painkillers and antibiotics to treat symptoms. It has also encouraged home remedies, including gargling salt water and drinking herbal teas. Previously, state media has suggested using burdock root as a cure while downplaying the effectiveness of vaccines. Pyongyang residents had their own ideas of how to tackle the virus. I had my faith that this could be cured if we have accurate treatments. I also think we can definitely overcome it by ventilating the house regularly and cleaning it while having a proper workout. For kids, they tend to move a lot even if they have a fever. So they just run around and play for 30 minutes if I turn on children's dancing songs. North Korea previously claimed no confirmed cases of COVID-19. It is only one of two countries in the world that is yet to begin a COVID vaccination campaign, according to the World Health Organization. North Korea's tally of the fever-stricken stood at over 1.2 million, with 50 deaths by Sunday, according to KCNA. It did not say how many suspected infections had tested positive for COVID-19. The North has blamed a large number of the deaths on people who are careless in taking drugs, 
due to a lack of knowledge about the Omicron variant and its correct treatment. This is Science in a Minute. Researchers from the University of Florida say that for the first time in human history, they have grown plants in soil from the moon, called lunar regolith. In a university press release, the scientists see their work as a breakthrough in the exploration of the moon and space. They say their efforts provide a crucial first step that will eventually allow future moon missions to grow their own plants for food and oxygen. In a study published by Communications Biology, researchers demonstrate that plants can spring to life and grow in the lunar regolith. The study also explains how the plants biologically react to the lunar soil. For their experiments, the scientists used only 12 grams of moon soil that was collected by the Apollo 11, 12, and 17 moon missions. I'm Via Ways, Rick Pantaleo. Join your host, Larry London, for Border Crossings, VOA's Worldwide Music Request Hour, every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in to hear your favorite songs and artists, win prizes and giveaways, and get the latest scoop from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send in requests to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or call 202-618-2077 to have your favorite music played for the entire world. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal. Go beyond the daily headlines with VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. Each weekday at 2105 UTC, join me, Steve Miller, as I put the latest developments into a global context with interviews and analysis. Listen online at voanews.com slash flashpoint or in your favorite podcast player. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com. Until next time, I am Chinerofa in Washington, wishing you a great day. An editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. An Istanbul court sentenced Turkish civil rights activist and philanthropist Osman Kavala to life in prison for allegedly attempting to overthrow the government. Kavala was first arrested in 2017 on charges related to the 2013 Gizi Park protests in Istanbul. 
The demonstrations grew into a nationwide year-long movement against then-Prime Minister Recep Erdogan's increasingly authoritarian rule. A court later acquitted Kavala of the Gizi Park charges and ordered Kavala released. He was immediately rearrested on charges of taking part in a 2016 coup attempt against President Erdogan, which resulted in the death of at least 250 people and the eventual detention of over 110,000 people, including civil servants, teachers, activists, and journalists. In addition to Kavala, the Turkish court sentenced seven other defendants to 18-year prison sentences for aiding the attempted overthrow of the Erdogan government. Among them was 71-year-old architect Mujala Yepice, Istanbul municipality urban planner Typhoon Karaman, and documentary filmmaker Chidem Mater. The United States is deeply troubled and disappointed by the court's decision to convict Osman Kavala, among others. His unjust conviction is inconsistent with respect for human rights, fundamental freedoms, and the rule of law, said State Department spokesperson Ned Price in a statement. We again call on Turkey to release Osman Kavala in keeping with the European Court of Human Rights rulings, as well as to free all others arbitrarily incarcerated. The United States remains gravely concerned by the continued judicial harassment of civil society, media, political and business leaders in Turkey, including through prolonged pre-trial detention, overly broad claims of support for terrorism and criminal insult cases. The people of Turkey deserve to exercise their human rights and fundamental freedoms without fear of retribution, declared spokesperson Price. The right to exercise freedom of expression, peaceful assembly, and association is enshrined in Turkey's constitution and its international law obligations and Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe commitments. We urge the government to cease politically motivated prosecutions and to respect the rights and freedoms of all Turkish citizens. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 